Okay, we continue um, our study on prayer, the theology and application of prayer. Uh, I'll open in prayer, and uh, we'll continue. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are grateful that we have a place to gather. We're thankful that uh, you have uh, shown yourself to us and have granted us um, saving faith. So help us to look into your word and understand something more about our communion with you by way of prayer. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We're trying uh, to come to terms uh, with the grand arch um, of what the Bible says um, about prayer. Um, Following as we are um, Gary Miller's work titled, I'm Calling on the Name of the Lord. Um, That is tracing the contours Um, of the Bible's teaching on prayer, uh, making all the connections um, in the Old Testament. We won't do so um, in a fully exhaustive sense, but uh, we're seeing something um, as regards the connection between prayer and and covenant, or as Miller puts it more generally, uh, between prayer and the gospel. Miller's thesis, as we have said, is, uh, is greatly shaped by a powerful quote um, from John Kelvin and uh, his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, it's referenced several times throughout the book um, that says, and I quote, Just as faith is born from the gospel, um, so through the gospel our hearts are trained to call upon God's name. And one of uh, Miller's main findings is that prayer um, responds to God's promises. God is a God of promise. We respond in prayer. Um, And these these promises um, look different at different points in salvation history. Um, Early on, um, prayers respond to the promises promises God made to Adam and Eve in the garden. We've already looked into the fact that there was no prayer before the fall. There's no need for prayer before the fall. As uh, God entered into the presence of his people, he came out to them. And then once man fell, um, they were driven out. From the presence of God. And then in chapter 4, in waiting on this promised one, Genesis 3.15, the people started to cry out to God. They started to pray. Uh, We looked at uh, God's covenant with Abraham and how uh, the patriarchs uh, plead with God to keep his promises. Uh, We did a kind of, uh, you know, a 30,000 foot flyover Um, of the book of Genesis last week, seeing as we did that generations come and go, uh, people um, migrate, they move in, they move out, they move about, Um, everyone gets older and everyone dies. And we saw that there isn't much praying um, of any real significance anyway um, in the book of Genesis, but God continues to speak. God continues to move. God continues to to draw um, his people to himself and carries out his preordained plan of Genesis 3, chapter 15, where um, he says, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. There will be hostility, but there will come one who will crush your head, who will destroy Satan, but in the process his heel will be bruised. Uh, We moved on and we followed God's call of Abraham um, and, and the promise um, he gave to him. Uh, we looked at Abraham's prayer. 
that after God announced to Abraham that Sarah, his wife, will conceive and bear his heir, Abraham, look at Genesis 17, 17, fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham, here it is, said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, the subject of Abraham's prayer is the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise. That's the subject, that that God would fulfill his promise in providing this heir, but it's just not the way that Abraham would expect. So Ishmael seems to be the most logical heir of his line. God says, no, you're going to have a son of your own through the wife of your own. Now, God himself underlines that point in the next verse, verse 19, Genesis 17. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him and an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Okay, then came Isaac, through whom Abraham's offspring will be as the sand of the sea. God fulfilled his promise. Then came Jacob, who would pray years later, many years later, according to the what? Same what? Promise. We looked at last week. Same promise. In Genesis 39, verse 11, Jacob prays. This is where he's praying for deliverance from the hand of his brother Esau. He feared for his life. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers, with the children. But you said, verse 12, but you said, he says to the Lord, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So we learn here the preoccupation of the prayer is the survival of the covenant line. That's the heart of his prayer. And as Miller points out, this is for Yahweh to honor his covenant promises. That's the cry that we see. So here, God is building his kingdom. It will come to fruition. And uh, this is a hope that the patriarchs uh, began to um, embrace early on in the scriptures, praying back to God that he carry out what he promised. We pointed out last week, Jesus said he's coming again. How do the apostles pray? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So uh, God's um, sovereignty, we see, is, is set. Um, he, he sovereignly sets the pace of uh, how he will do what he will do. Um, he seems to be in no way in a hurry as we read the scriptures Um, Last time we covered several hundred years from the seed promise, several hundreds and hundreds of years from the seed promises of Genesis 3 to the promise of a son and a land that is promised to Abraham. But by the end of Genesis, we haven't even gotten to the land yet. We're at the beginning of a 400-year period of God's people down in Egypt. Back in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, 
know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So the Lord's building a nation. He started with 70 people, 70 of his own people down there um, in Egypt. It's going to take time to develop. That is from 70 to to a nation. And then Genesis ends with Joseph. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. We have, we end uh, Genesis with, with Joseph being embalmed and put in a coffin. Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. 400 years pass. We enter Exodus. Look, chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who come to Egypt with Jacob each with his household. Now, the first word um, in Exodus we read is the word these is translated by the ESV. Uh, But but the first word in Exodus isn't actually these. The first word is actually a conjunction. It's the word and. And. And that shows us that, that Exodus is a continuation of a preceding narrative. That is the book of Genesis. And. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, if you jump forward to chapter 2, look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, when anytime we read that God remembered, we read here God remembered his promise. He remembered his covenant. This is not that the Lord has a fuzzy memory, and all of a sudden it's restored. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Never read the scripture like that. It's not that God establishes his will, forgets it, and all of a sudden is awakened when people cry out to him. That's not the case. His covenant was established, that's the fact. Time elapses, and then in due time, God says, now I will definitively act on my promises. That's what it means God remembered. and He moves. So he's ready to take action. So here we we see this come into even greater focus. As Moses is called by God out of Midian, he spent 20 years in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, He fled for his life. He ended up in Midian. He's 40 years as a shepherd. And God calls him by way of the burning bush. He notices The bush is burning, it's not being consumed. He investigates, and God speaks to him through the burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 6, and he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There he is again. God reiterates his covenant relationship. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them in the land of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here, after 40 years, Moses sets out 
and returns to Egypt. Exodus 5. Look forward. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now remember, he increased their labor. They had people within that kingdom that would gather straw for the Israelites in order to make bricks for for building. And now, after this, they have to gather their own straw for making bricks, and, and, and the quota was to remain the same. So, after being turned on, that is Moses, he's turned on and blamed by that Israelite foreman, which you can read in chapter 4, verses 19 to 21, um, Moses, in response, turns to God in prayer. Okay, remember, this is a line of prayer. God's promises, God's promises, man's response to God according to those promises. Now, Moses turns to God in prayer here, and he actually blames God in the form of a question. Chapter 5, verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done the evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You ever pray like that? So his complaint is that Yahweh, the covenant Lord, that's his covenant name, has not kept his promises. And that's confirmed by God's response. Notice Exodus 6, verse 1. But but the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. In other words, now you shall see the accomplishment of all that I have sworn to do. You're going to see action. Everything that's been promised shall be accomplished. And notice God reveals his covenant faithfulness to Moses in verse 2. God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am Yahweh the Lord. Now, watch this. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, I am the Lord. Okay, that, 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 that's a phrase repeated throughout this passage, capital L-O-R-D, called the Tetragrammaton, the, the unpronounceable name of the covenant Lord, rendered Yahweh. So God begins his speech to Moses, notice, with covenant language. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So Moses, at this point, he's undone. His focus thus far has been on the disastrous outcome 
of his first encounter with Pharaoh rather than the character of God. So Moses is obviously, he's very self-focused here. So the, the fact that God said, I will be with you, despite Pharaoh's hard heart, that truth hasn't sunk in to the mind and heart of Moses at this point. So Moses is going to have to learn, this is a big lesson, Moses is going to have to learn there's much more at stake than how he's doing personally. That's so important in our day. Because today, the mistake we make is to think about God's dealings with his people as as independent and peculiar to me, the individual believer. Thinking that which God is doing comes as individual lightning bolts from heaven for me. They're intended for me. He speaks to me. And later on, he reveals this, that, or the other to me. And and he's doing this in my life. That's how we often think. Rather as thinking that he works within his people corporately. And we're just just a small little part of a greater reality of what he's doing. God's working in a people here. And we're completely unaware oftentimes that that God is doing just that, a much larger work in his people um, as a whole, not merely an individual work, though he is. Though he is. He does a sanctifying work in in and through his people. And here we're known as the body of the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, He does a work here. So this is to point out the fact that when when God moves to to encourage his people throughout redemptive history, he does so over and over again by reminding us us that that as we appeal to God, it's not so much in just a, a, a vertical move that God makes in response to individuals apart from a greater people. Instead, we see in the Bible... God's emphasis in responding to prayer is more horizontal. And I'm going to show you this from some New Testament examples when we wrap this up this morning. And that is an historical move of redemption upon his people, which should reorient our minds to to the overall grand narrative of what God is doing, redemptively. What he's done and what he did here. And the fact that here we are in Christ, that grand narrative is still in motion. That's why when we read the Bible, it's addressed primarily, the letters are addressed to the church, the people of God. And the ones that are individually written are, are written to pastors of his church. So God comes to us, he ministers to us through his word to to point out to us that what you're going through as an individual is only one small part of a much, much bigger story. And this is where we see Moses. 
He's sideways and he's all bent because he's been turned on. And God's doing a much greater work in a people. And this is a lesson, as you know, having gone through Exodus, that, that he will learn. And then he goes to bat for the people as God's mediator. So here's what God is doing is in, in Moses. We see all this opposition to Moses personally. He takes this in a very personal sense. So in this hour of crisis, what does God do? He says, let me remind you who I am. I'll remind you of my, my, my nature. Let me reveal more of myself to you that has never been revealed before. That's what he says here. So let me remind you, I'm the very same one who spoke to the patriarchs. That's what he says. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but not by my name, Yahweh. Okay, but his name Yahweh was used way back in Genesis 12. Okay? So what's he saying here? Remember, Abraham called upon the name of Yahweh. So here, God is not saying here that they never heard the sound of his name, that unpronounceable name of, of, of God, the covenant Lord. And now all of a sudden, he's given the sound of his name for the first time to Moses. He's not saying that. It's not the name or the sound of the name that's being given for the first time. What it is, is is the full significance of that name. Yahweh, the covenant Lord. The nature of his name is about ready to be put on display for all of Israel. And they're going to see the power of God through his ten sign judgments. Those plagues that will be poured out upon Egypt in order to deliver who? His firstborn son, which is a people. That's what he says. He's about to manifest the full impact of his name. It's amazing. Now, one theologian, um, Alec, um, Alec Mautier says this, quote, God sent Moses to Egypt to declare a nature, not a name. End quote. So the name they knew, the patriarchs knew the name, but his nature, it was about to blow their minds in what God was going to do. And that again was his sign judgments to deliver a people. I'm the God who keeps my covenant, he says. And the patriarchs didn't fully understand that. But you're about to see that, he says to Moses. So Israel at this point had no idea how, how glorious, how powerful, and how faithful God is, revealing as he will the nature of that divine name and power. He appears in a way he hadn't appeared before to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, for that matter. Now notice the progression. I've established my covenant, verse 4. Time elapsed, okay? My people lived as aliens. I heard their groanings, okay? In verse 5, I have remembered my covenant. 
Beautiful. So Moses' prayer, his prayer here, is based on confidence of the commitment of Yahweh for his people. Even though he starts out complaining to God. You brought evil upon your people. So Yahweh answers by affirming his commitment to the covenant, underlines the fact that, oh, I will answer the prayer, and I will fulfill my promise. In a way my people have never seen. Abraham didn't know my power like you're about to know my power. His nature. So verse 5, Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God, fast forward, calls Moses up to the mountain, up Mount Sinai. He gives the, the oracles of God. He gives the word of God. He gives the law of God to his mediator, Moses. And then, while the people are down below forging a golden calf because they're tired of waiting for God, the, the, remember, the golden calf was a representation of the one true God. So after that debacle, in chapter 32, verse 9, Exodus 32, the Lord says to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I make a great nation out of you. I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. But, verse 11, Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Notice verse 13. Remember. Remember Abraham, Isaac, And Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he spoke, that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now remember, in all the cases of Exodus, what's at stake is the survival of, of Yahweh's firstborn son, a people, Israel, who's in bondage. Back in chapter 4, verse 22, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son, I say to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. That was a long process. So all this stuff with Moses plagues and all that, the waiting, them seeing the power and the nature of Yahweh was a long process. And this stands, remember, is an example to us. Fast forward, 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. 
All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So everything we study in Exodus, we pointed this out numerous times we went through it, is written down for our example, for our instruction. So there's a lesson here as regards prayer. We, we often think of prayer as quick answers to depressing problems. Yes, we do. So how do we pray then and get past, Lord, help me to have a great day? You know, we had to train our children growing up. That was their main prayer in the mornings. Lord, help us to have a good day. So we had to teach him beyond that. That's, that's, that's a childish prayer. You come to the Lord childlike, but we have to grow, to, grow out of childishness. So, so how do we get past, Lord, help my day to go smoothly? Well, it, it's a matter of learning how to pray for the little personal things in light of the much bigger things. Moses learned this personally. He became an incredible mediator for the people. Remember, he said, Lord, don't wipe them out. Take me. Take me in their place. So he, he, really, he really grew. So th- this means that we, we have to recognize, beloved, our biggest needs. And our biggest need is nothing less than God's trans- transformation of us into Christ, what? Likeness. That's our biggest need. So then our need to pray becomes obvious because you can't make yourself Christ-like on your own. (laughs) It's impossible. So this is our greatest need. So let's think about um, the the typical prayer requests of, say, say you're in a small group Bible study. We've all been in groups like this. You go to someone's home, and, and you eat snacks, and you drink coffee, and you have a Bible study. And then it's time to close up, and you go around the circle. Let's say, let's have prayer requests. So you go around the circle, and what do we hear? Someone pray, asks that you, you pray for their neighbor's friend's aunt who's in the hospital. Or pray for my, my I'm having I'm trouble at my job. I have a burdensome relationship. Pray for my bad back. Right? Is there any problem with that? In one sense, no, not at all. Because God is our Lord who wants us to bring all of the details of our life to him. And we should. Right? We should. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But yet, on the other hand, our prayers are often far too small, and we stop at only that. My bad back. My, my, my neighbor's friend's aunt. You know, I get, 
you know, bless the hearts of our people who send in emails praying for a coworker. I have no idea who this person is. Not, you know, they even write, I don't even know if they're a believer, but, you know, pray, pray for their bad leg or something like that. And that's okay, but it doesn't stop there. Because that's far short of what we read in the scriptures. So we want to learn to pray for these small things in light of the big things, um, which, all of which is shaped according to God's agenda, which is very large. His agenda is huge within this world. So as we wrap this up, um, God's agenda for, for prayers in our lives um, is on a much grander scale than our neighbor's friend's aunt. Paul knew something of this. Okay, I want you to look at this. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. I'll just read these off the screen. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then, look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 3-6. through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things. Number one, most of Paul's prayers cannot have immediate answers. Dominated as they are by long-term concerns. These are prayers for the long haul. Did you notice during the uh, congregational prayer, it's typically the same basic outline? Well, it's because of this. Notice, he prays that they keep growing in the knowledge and love of God, they keep becoming more like Jesus, that they keep living in the power of the Spirit 
to the very end. I don't think any of these prayers could be checked off on Paul's prayer list as answered. Do the Ephesians know all there is to know about God? No. The Philippians, that God has finished his work in them? No, because they're still breathing. Or the Colossians, have they reached fullness in Christ? No. Are the Thessalonians now blameless forever? <laughs> no. Do we, do, do, do we serve in perfect holy unity here? No, that's why we always pray for unity. These are, as I said, prayers that are to be prayed over and over again. That's what prayer, uh, Paul does in his, his praying. And it's according to God's promise in Scripture. You keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's infinite, beloved. You'll never be fully grown. So we keep praying. So secondly, these are prayers about God's work in his people's lives, which makes it prayers according to God's agenda. God had an agenda in the Old Covenant, it was his plan being worked out. He's a plan to this very day. So Paul's focus isn't that his dear friends will have an easy life. And that's not his primary focus. He, he, his primary focus is not that every obstacle will be removed from the road of these local churches. But that God will continue to do a work in them in the midst of all that. Showing them more of himself, making them more like him, enabling them to live out the gospel. That's the heart of Paul's prayers. So, and Moses had to learn that. He was just afflicted, he was just offended, and he complained to God. And he really grew to understand that, ooh, this is a lot bigger than me. These prayers are prayers about personal transformation for a people as a whole. Very significant prayers that prayer that, that Paul prays. Gospel-saturated praise, prayers to make us more like Christ. Living gospel-shaped lives. Let me close with a, a reading from Miller's book. And this is under the heading recalibrating how we pray in light of the biblical theology of prayer. Miller says this. We pray recognizing our greatest needs. Once we realize that God's agenda for us is nothing less than transformation into the likeness of Jesus and that God is passionate about enabling us to live wholeheartedly for him all day, every day, for our whole lives, then our need to pray and the kinds of things we need to pray for become rather obvious. If we're asked to give a talk, to teach a Sunday school class, to lead a home group, to meet, a prayer, to meet with prayer with someone else, to visit someone who's ill, can we do all those things? Yes, we can. We're going to learn this this morning in the sermon. The fact that the disciples couldn't cast out the demon 
they were utterly surprised that they couldn't. And we'll learn why. Sunday school. We can cut out the craft. We can prepare the lesson, read the passage, make the coffee, get into the car, drive to the hospital. These are things we can all do that we can all do competently without being thrown into a blind panic. But can we do the work of God in our own lives or in anyone else's life? You must be joking, Miller says. Paul Miller, another Miller, helpfully says that learned desperation is at the heart of the praying life. Remember I quoted that a couple weeks ago. Learned desperation. And that desperation comes when we see the massive scope of God's plans for us and our world. When we see our inability to do anything that makes any difference to ourselves or to the world. When we see past what is happening right now and today and tomorrow to what God has been doing in us and our world and to what we will do, he will do rather, in us and our world. When we see how much we need God to change us by his spirit and to change other people by his spirit, when we see that, then we will start to pray and keep praying. If we get this, then it will also radically change the way in which we pray. The focus of our prayers will increasingly become God's work in us and God's work in the lives of others. So we will pray like this constantly in every phase of life. Lord, help me to see this as part of your great work in my life and in our world. Lord, use this to make me more like the Lord Jesus and bring others to know Jesus. Lord, strengthen me that I might point other people to Jesus today, encouraging them to see your agenda for their lives. Lord, work through me to advance your agenda in the lives of my friends and family and in our world through the gospel. Next heading, we pray realizing that it's always going to be hard work. There's a commonly accepted myth that if we pray, if we're praying properly, and I pointed this out last week, those who are spiritual, then prayer will be a breeze. This is not, the new, this is not a new idea. It's been around forever. The problem is, it's wrong. And Paul goes on, and uh, he goes on to describe how Paul tells the Colossians, remember that Epaphras, who was held up, struggled on their behalf in prayer? Always struggling on your behalf, he says. In other words, the point is prayer is hard work. It's a battle. Then, of course, is the example of Jesus struggling in the garden just before his crucifixion. The problem is that prayer is hard, but it's supposed to be like that. It's hard because we live in a fallen world. It's also hard because it is intrinsically, intrinsically linked to God's lifelong work of transforming our lives. So the question is, do you find praying hard? He writes, good then you're on the right track, right? So anyway, it, it, our prayers, beloved, as we, we learn to pray um, scripturally, um, are, are laid out and designed um, to pray in regard to a much larger agenda than our own personal little comforts and such. And we see that example. I mean, Moses, we see through, we see, 
um, throughout redemptive history, those have stood on behalf of God's people and prayed. I also had that in mind. So hopefully that will help in our own prayer lives to, to see the bigger scope of what's God, what God is doing and the gift that we have in prayer. Amen? All right.